Some say that alongside this see-it-to-believe-it world is the shadowy realm of the supernatural. Sometimes the residents of that dimension touch us, and in one moment, our lives are changed forever. America's Lady of Supernatural Thrillers, Mary Ann Pohl, is your real ghost chatter host. On this podcast, you'll hear stories by real people who have seen real ghosts. Gordon tells us about an unwelcome encounter with his dead father-in-law, and Lori tells us about a dead logger who looked for his wife and daughter for years after his death until she helped him find peace. Then there's Victoria, who shares her story of a long-dead pig, Edna June, who still watches over her ranch. Did you know a cafe in Anchorage, Alaska is haunted by the ghost of a woman who was blown to bits by a hired hitman? Once in a while, Mary Ann will podcast a tale taken from the genre she loves best, the supernatural. These are just a few of the stories you will hear, and these stories just keep coming. Welcome to today's Real Ghost Chatter episode. Marianne Paul, America's Lady of Supernatural Thrillers, a charter member of Author Masterminds, and your host on Real Ghost Chatter. Here's the next few chapters from Raven's Cove. If you are at home, grab your favorite drink, settle into your favorite listening spot. If you're on the road, stay safe. In either event, please enjoy. Chapter 9, The Darkness Grows. Miggy made two trips to Raven's Ravine before sunset. On his first trip, he arrived well before the appointed time. He found the ground on Corpse Mound soiled from the body removed earlier in the day. He hurried back to his shop, grabbed an old blanket, and ran back to the ravine. Both times, he sneaked under the yellow tape, hoping no one saw him violate the crime scene. Feeling a bit foolish, but not so foolish as to ignore Atromatus' instructions, he threw down the blanket and sat cross-legged back to the ravine. He could feel the ice-cold ground beneath him. He shuddered at the thought of what might be sleeping into his pants. Focus, Miggy, my man, focus, he said. He cleared his throat. I am a messenger of your great guard. Please do not harm me, but listen to his warning. One is in Raven's Cove who means to destroy you. He is strong in God. He is working to muster God's people. You destroyed his family and, except for this man and a few others, his entire town. Oh, great one, no one can defeat you. Tell me how you want to proceed to guarantee your victory. I await your instructions. Miggy sat still, his chattering teeth piercing the otherwise silent countryside. He felt a presence. To make matters worse, the lone hag tree appeared to be bending toward him. He used every bit of his self-control to stay immobile and to stifle the scream constricting his throat. Numb terror blanketed Miggy's brain. He did not register the blood trickling from his mouth or the self-inflicted wound on his tongue. The old hag tree started to shimmer, exuding a tarnished gold light. Terror gave way to curiosity. The sound of long dead leaves, none on this tree as long as he'd been alive, engulfed him. He covered his ears because the noise became unbearable. Stop, he yelled. Miggy heard a gallows laugh before the clatter of the ghost leaves died. He dropped his hands. 
The pale light illuminated and then spotlighted a small arrowhead sitting at his feet. Arrowheads were commonplace in Raven's Cove and not a remarkable find. Still, he could not stop looking at it. It began to kaleidoscope through purple and black and red and even the jaundiced yellow of the tree. The rhythmic pulsation of the colors hypnotized him. Miggy inched his body toward the arrowhead, making sure the rest of his body stayed statue still. Pain seared through his left hand. He opened it to find a deep cut, so deep, Miggy saw bone before blood filled the gaping wound. The pain subsided, a scar the color of eggplant running in a straight line from his middle finger to the base of his hand remained. It did happen, Miggy thought. Miggy gazed into the magical stone. For the second time, Miggy broke the rule of silence. This charm can wound and heal. With this new find, I can run Raven's Cove. I can rule all of South Central Alaska, then all of Alaska, and maybe even the world. The possibilities are endless. You'll all see, Reverend Plotno will be my minion, part of my new congregation. A sallow light snaked from the arrowhead in his hand, dancing toward his chest, macabre rhythm set to his heartbeat. A long tendril of okra mist shot through his body, then pulled out. Miggy stood, turned, and faced the ravine path. A wind, laced by the stench of decay, smacked him in the face. Instead of acting as a repellent, it acted as a magnet and drew him to the head of the path. Breaking the rules emboldened Miggy. He took a step onto the path. The anemic glow brightened and exposed once invisible hag trees along the trail's edge. The trail ended at a treed archway. A gnarly, misty finger shot down the pathway, pointing to the door. I can't go down there, it's forbidden. Run, his mind commanded. Desire overcame his fear and collapsed under the relentless craving to know the Guardian's secret of knowledge and power. This is why the Guardian told me not to go. Well, turnabout's fair play, as they say. I know the secret now, and I will be free from the wretched fiend who proclaimed himself a friend and is nothing of the sort. I will destroy him. Miggy advanced to his destiny, a smile on his face at the revenge he would extract on a traumatist. A traumatist snapped alert. The deep golden oak door of the Congregational Alliance began to bleed. Small uniform tendrils coursed down its ornate top to its elaborate threshold. A roar of rage, smelling of burnt flesh and thousands of decaying murdered souls, issued from the dark mist. Miggy existed no more. A stupid mortal should have been my reward. Now I won't taste the sweet nectar of the terror and pain when I drain the life from the pastry bag of flesh. Stolen, my prize stolen. To make matters worse, a traumatist could not retaliate. The commander would not abide even the appearance of rebellion. He quieted. The blood crept back up the door and withdrew into the overhead. Better him than me, thought a traumatist while he settled again over his post. Chapter 10, Grievous Memories. Josiah Williams awoke with a start from a fitful sleep. Dread-filled memories crowded his dreams. He played with his beloved Martha and Ezra, loving, innocent children who adored him, no matter how long he stayed away from home. They were in his arms again. He smelled those sweet children just fresh from a bath, ready for a good night's sleep. A murky mist engulfed them and pulled. They screamed, small arms reaching, reaching. Then their lifeless bodies were tossed at his feet like rag dolls, dead where such life had been before. Josiah's body heaved in uncontrollable sobs. Why didn't you take me, Lord? Why my babies? Why my wife? 
Josiah willed himself silent. He never received an answer, no matter how many times he beseeched God. They were in heaven with God now. Bonnie's belief in Jesus Christ unshakable to the end. A model example to him, an agnostic leaning toward atheism during their entire marriage. Oh, how she tried to make him see the truth. She stuck with him and by him throughout all the years of his neglect. She raised those babies, not me. Josiah felt an odd comfort in knowing the children and she were together in heaven. No more pain or terror now, not for them. They were in the hands of the one who sustained them through him and his coldness. They were drenched in God's warmth and love, a father's love he came to know too late. In the irony of God, the day I chose to die, in fact, the day I held a gun to my temple, I found life. Don't do it, Josiah rang through his head. The living God exists. He wants you. He will avenge your children, your beloved wife. Of all the ideas to run through his mind, the story of Job came to mind while he held the cold steel to his temple. He too lost his family, Josiah remembered thinking. But unlike me, Job continued to proclaim God's sovereignty and goodness. And just like Job, I prayed for death, for the misery to end. And just like Job, I still live. The story was enough to make Josiah lay the pistol down beside him. What if I'm wrong, he thought. The doubts and questions made him resolve putting off death by his own hand to a later time, maybe an hour or maybe a day. In my arrogance, I told God, when the pain becomes unbearable, God, I will take my own life. Then the thought, and if I don't believe in you, why am I talking to you? Josiah's belief took hold, a seed in shaky, loose soil, but a seed just the same. Josiah walked to the window while consumed in the memory of his first encounter with salvation. He stared without seeing the darkness beyond. The cold emanating through the under-installated window sent a shudder through him and he returned to the present. He noted the darkness and the absence of the forecasted full moon. The thing has taken another victim and has grown stronger. Minister Lucas must hear me. Josiah fell to his knees. God help your servant, I have sinned. But you say, if I repent, you will wash me clean. Forgive me, Lord. You have ordained my days. You have ordained my purpose, O gracious God. Send your holy angels before me. I cannot bend the ear of Paul Lucas to what is happening here, but you can, O Lord. Please hear my prayers. In your mighty son, Jesus' name, amen. Josiah thought, maybe this death will work for good, Lord. Maybe the thing will show itself sooner rather than later. Maybe this town could be rid of it before the evil from without feeding on the evil within the town takes hold and destroys it. Josiah knew these current deaths were just the appetizers. The town would be the main course and the believers the sweetest of desserts. A sudden urgency replaced his hope. Even in his town, the thing did not move at this speed. He rose and headed for the door. Josiah caught a glimpse of himself in a mirror. Shaggy, unkempt gray hair sprouted above his ears and around his head like a weathered bird's nest. The wrinkles on his trousers and shirt evidenced yesterday's attire. Won't do much good to meet with Pastor Lucas if he thinks I can't even take care of myself. Josiah turned to his right and into the bathroom to grab a shower and fresh clothing. Chapter 11, A Tenuous Truce. Kat opened her eyes to find herself staring into black glittering ones, catching a red glow. She screamed and then covered her mouth. BC placed a velvet black paw on her cheek as if to comfort her, then turned two fluid circles and melted as only a cat can into a furry ball, weight against her chest and began to purr. Kat's dreams were bad before, but never like this one. 
She felt but couldn't see someone in her bedroom ready to hurt her. She shivered and cuddled Black Cat, her greatest consolation when the terrors of the night came. And yes, they did come. An owl close hooted. The ancient woman of death. Stop it, Cat told herself. It is dark and the bird is on the hunt. She shivered again and dragged her old tattered quilt to her neck, just as she had done at 12 after watching the Bela Lugosi version of Dracula. For many dark nights, she believed Dracula would kill her. The quilt comforted her then, just as it did now. It had been a gift of love from Grandmama Tavslowski, and though she'd tell no one, she still believed it protected her. She drifted into a much-needed sleep, smiling in memory of those wonderful days, which ended all too soon with the passing of Gran. Her cell phone played Pachelbel's Canon in D. She hated ringing phones. Classical music, even in the tinny tone played by a cell phone, was better than the horrid ring. Oh, cat croaked. B.C., awakened by the noise, jumped in disgust from the bed, the warm indent still where he comforted Cat to sleep. Cat, thank God you're okay. Why wouldn't I be? The closest thing to danger is the phone waking me up with the start I just had, she stated irritably. There's been another one. Another what? The import of Bart's words connected. The fog in her brain shot away. Another murder. Please tell me there hasn't been another murder. Bart's confident baritone seemed strangely shaky another murder. Where? Top of Raven's Ravine, same as the other. This time it's one of our own, more or less. Who? I believe it's Miguel Salisto, or what's left of him. Bart still considered Miggy, never known for being an involved town member, a part of Raven's Cove and under his protection. The safekeeping of this town and its people is my primary duty, he thought, and I have failed, just like I failed the Pantino family. Bart thought back five years ago when he took the job. Although young, he spent a couple of years with the Alaska Troopers and felt ready to take on the challenge of being the lone police officer in a small town. Until the phone call, a day burned into his memory. Richard Pantino called to report his wife, Dana, and children missing. The whole town went out to search. The Alaska State Troopers were called in, no sign of them. Bart spent every day looking for clues to find the family. He prayed to God to bring them back alive. It's the last time I asked God for anything. Two weeks later, the troopers found the family in shallow graves, 10 miles south of Raven's Cove. The children assaulted, the mother too. Bart still saw the decaying bodies full of maggots and flies. Richard Pantino grew hateful and locked himself away. When he ventured out, he never missed an opportunity to remind Bart they died because Bart did not find them in time. A year later, Richard Pantino blew his head off with a sawed-off shotgun. I failed him too, Bart said to himself. Mickey, are you sure, Cat asked. Cat's question brought Bart back to the present. Yes. Wow, I didn't think his business or his lifestyle were dangerous. I never understood how Mickey stayed in business. In fact, I never understood why the Congregational Alliance made Mickey a member in good standing. Even in my limited knowledge of Christianity, I always thought it was weird. Still, dangerous? I'm not sure his business is connected to his demise, Bart answered. Maybe not. What can I do? I need you to be at the office today. The feathers are going to hit a fan when this gets out, and you know it will. Can you be ready in an hour? I'll come get you. Cat didn't argue. She did not want to cross paths with the killer and be victim number three. I'll be ready. Please bring coffee. No food. I don't think my stomach can handle it. Will do. Bart hung up. The wheels of the old faded red pickup crunched the gravel announcing Bart's arrival. Cat hopped off the porch and met him halfway. The rich aroma of dark chocolate and coffee struck her nose when she opened the passenger door. A mocha, yum. 
Kat rewarded Bart with a thankful smile. They traveled the short distance to town without saying a word. They pulled up in front of the sheriff's office and empty Main Street greeted them. Kat breathed a sigh of relief. Guess no one has heard. Probably won't last, but I'll take the quiet for now. Bart rounded the truck and opened the passenger door. Kat jumped down. She unlocked the station house door and threw her coat and keys on the desk. Who found him? Amos Thralling. Again? Kat said in disbelief. Yep. I'm going to have to bring Amos in for questioning. I'm not convinced he has anything to do with the murders. All the same, I can't let my feelings run this investigation. Would you track him down? Kat glanced at her watch. He's fishing by now. Don't know why he thinks he can fish at this time of year. But just like the sun, Amos rises every morning and goes out for the big one, Bart answered. Always has. See what you can do to find him just the same? I'll call his brother. Get him to track down Amos and bring him to the station. Thanks. I'm going to the ravine to take a look at Miggy before he shipped to Anchorage. Man, the FBI guy will be much harder to get rid of after this. Shaking his head, Bart turned on his left foot and strode to his office to grab his hat. He breezed past Cat out into a gray, gloomy day. The mountains hid behind a blanket of low-lying, moisture-filled clouds. Any forensic evidence will be destroyed if it snows or worse rains on Miggy's corpse before I can get there. Bart pushed the old red truck's accelerator to the floor. Yesterday's crime scene tape greeted him. Miggy occupied the exact spot and lay in the exact same position as John Doe. You sicko, Bart said to the unknown perpetrator. I'll get you whoever you are. Something rustled from the direction of the path. Bart drew his gun, pointing it down the ravine. You hiding in there, show yourself right now. What you doing? Bart jumped a few inches to his left, swung around and pointed the gun at Ken Melbourne. Unshaken, Ken crouched down and studied the path leading to the dark opening of the ravine. Full daylight, gloomy day though it is, and not an ounce of light shining into the chasm? Ken shot a questioning look at Bart. Ignoring the implied request for information, Bart lowered his gun and holstering it with a snap. What on earth are you doing here, Melbourne? I came up to look at yesterday's crime scene. Odd to see a corpse. I'm sure yesterday's is under autopsy in Anchorage. Bart's shoulders sagged under the shame he felt from the inability to protect the people of Raven's Cove. This would be one of ours. Same place, same position, same everything. May I take a look? Bart gestured with his head toward Miggy Solisto's corpse. Ken walked over, looking as he went, ensuring he didn't contaminate any potential evidence. The lurch in his stomach shocked him. He saw all types of murders in his career, both at the crime scene and in pictures. Human teeth marked so perfect and so deep in flesh they could cast a mold and arrest the perpetrator once caught. He witnessed firsthand his share of the horror men could do to each other. The scene in front of him surpassed all of them. The stench reminded him of a month-long, decomposed drowning victim. The skinless corpse's muscle liquefied at a rapid rate, dropping a thick, pungent fluid onto the ground. As quick as the red, stinking globules hit the ground, the land absorbed it, leaving the area stained but dry. Ken leaned closer. There are no eyes. The sockets drained a black and purple fluid. In fact, most of the stench came from the eye sockets. Ken straightened and turned a wan face toward the sheriff. In all my time, I've never seen any chemical or poison to cause this. Bart shot a surprised look to Ken. He never heard a suit guy admit not knowing everything. If they didn't know, they tried to sound like they did. I've already ascertained as much, so then, is there any reason for you to be here, Agent Melbourne? Sometimes, Sheriff, it takes two to make sense of something. I believe we should combine our knowledge and get moving on solving this before there's another victim. Serial killers have patterns, and this pattern is frightening. Ken turned back to look at the body. 
He tilted his head up in Bart's direction. I'd expect another murder tonight. There won't be much left of this town in very short order if we don't stop the perp soon. Bart pondered this. Whether he liked it or not, this suit made a good point. Tell you what, Melbourne, you can follow along, but if you try to take over, if you even think about giving orders to anyone, you'll be out of here. Small victory, but victory just the same, Ken thought. Agreed, he held out his hand. This time the sheriff took it. Bart and Ken scoured the area, hoping to find even a tiny shred of a clue. No luck. The medical team arrived to take Miggy Salisto's remains to the funeral home, the closest thing to a morgue in Raven's Cove, to await dispatch to the medical examiner in Anchorage. If you enjoyed this podcast, I encourage you to share it with others you think would also be interested. If you'd like to know more about me, go to maryannpoll.com and or authormasterminds.com forward slash M-A-R-Y dash A-N-N dash P-O-L-L. Until next time, may the wind always be at your back, the sun on your face, and the good Lord walk beside you.